It seems like God often arranges uh, and plans messages along with events that you have no way of knowing, but I want to speak to you this morning from Romans 16 about the importance of each individual person's contribution to the going forth of the gospel. And we're going to talk about why team and why every individual matters. And I want to do that from the most preached on book in the Bible, but from the least preached on chapter in that book. Uh, And if you haven't guessed yet, that is the book of Romans is the most preached on book, uh, but the least preached on chapter is from chapter 16. And I want to remind you, as we look at this uh, great inspired epistle, that the Bible teaches that all scripture is inspired uh, and is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that we'll be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so the truth is that this little known chapter in the Bible, or little regarded chapter, is essential if we're going to be equipped for every good work that we have as a church to do. So we're going to read, uh, it's a lengthy section, but we're going to especially focus on the first seven verses, and then on one of the, what I think is the most astounding verse in maybe all of them, uh, closing at around verse 22. So here now, if you want to follow along uh, on our screen, the Word of God. Uh, This is the close of this maybe most important letter ever penned by inspiration of the Spirit. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon in the church in Kentry. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help that she may need from you for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risk their lives for me Not only I, but all of the churches of the Gentiles are grateful for them, to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend Epenetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend, Stachys. Greet Apellus, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me, too. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermes, and the other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the Lord's people who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ with their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. But everyone has heard about your obedience. So I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my co-worker, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my fellow Jews. And now a transition from Paul. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, send you his greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother, Quartus, send you their greetings. And now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, 
so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. So to give a prize to anybody here who could come up with every single name that we just read, <laughs> you can join me in the wealth of getting to know a bunch of people, but these are all important people named by the Holy Spirit for a reason. And I read this text because one of the things that has been revealed that has been lost in our culture is connection and relationships. And it's been evidenced in an epidemic of loneliness. Uh, in fact, the Surgeon General in 2017 um, said this. He said, during my years of caring for patients, this means his years as a physician, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes or cancer, it was loneliness. In fact, he said that loneliness was more negatively impacting health based on research uh, than smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. Now, I might encourage you to smoke a pack of cigarettes a day. <laughs> but that is sobering thought about loneliness. And surveys on loneliness after the pandemic showed that the pandemic did not so much increase the number of people who experienced loneliness. And let me just say this, we all experience it from time to time. Amen. Even if we're rich in relationships and people, if you walk through life, they're just people you miss or an emptiness or a void. Um, but, but that epidemic of loneliness that seemed to be exacerbated or highlighted by the pandemic, actually, those who studied it said it didn't increase. It actually didn't increase. It revealed to people that a lot of their relationships and their activities, and yes, even church, was not really supplying the kind of give and take relationships that brought a satisfaction and that, dis, uh, that uh, caused loneliness to leave us. That, that may be one reason why across America, as the pandemic we trust has lifted, 40% of people who used to go to church are, are finding, yeah, I'm doing something else. And so I want to submit to you, this, this text is part of the solution, the, the bringing uh, out names that are in our hearts that are part of a common mission, but are, are, first of all, relationships that we cherish. It is not just a wasted words, but it is essential to what the church is. In fact, five times in this chapter, Paul uses a word that uh, it appears in the New Testament the first time after Christ used it, uh, ecclesia, the word for church. And it's in conjunction with relationships. What we see is the body of Christ, we're, we're not just a retreat for spiritual activity. We're not just an assembly for worship, but we are a body that is actually actively participating and advancing the mission of Christ. If church is less than that, then it's less than what uh, Christ intended to be. And one of the most countercultural things that we can do as a church is hold the same view of individuals, not just those in the church, but outside of the church that Paul did to say every person has infinite worth as they're made in the image of God. And that because we have been noticed by Christ, we begin to notice people. And I just want to submit to you, it's countercultural because everything in our culture is causing us just to kind of use people, ignore people, and go through processes that used to connect us with people, and now we're not. I mean, how, how many Wawa fans do we have here? I mean, this is Wawa territory, right? But, but like, I, I experienced something that I hadn't fully experienced the other day at, at a Wawa. I, I get the computer ordering, right? If you like Wawa, that's one of the cool things, that you can just go in, computer set up, and you order. So, but what I noticed that that removed that I used to enjoy in, in Bucks County was that I knew some of the, usually they were students who were working at Wawa and I knew their names. And all of a sudden I could see some people I know but no longer was there any kind of interaction with them, okay? So that was step one, but then I could have a conversation at the cashier, but this time, all I had to do, I, I ordered something on the, on the computer and then all I had to do was wave my phone. <laughs> And I was out of the store without even an eye-to-eye -eye glance of another human being. 
And I realize that there is something dehumanizing about that. I mean, we now, we have not only used computers, but we even talk about each other and people in computer ways. Like we say, they're hardwired for that, or they're programmed for that, or I need to be deprogrammed for that. And we're using these, these depersonalizing ways. And I want to submit to you that there, there is something not neutral, that actually is, is pernicious when it comes into our lives, and that is that we, we have forgotten that each individual is awesome. <laughs> each individual is to be noticed. And this can never be a technique for growing a church, like saying, we want to be welcoming because we want to grow our church. If it's that, <laughs> it's already spoiled before we get out of the, out of the door. <laughs> But it rather is, it's a manifest, has to be a manifestation of who we are. And, and I just submit to you, do, we ought to find ways to know the names of the person, uh, whether the people who pick up our trash or deliver our mail or ways of, and it will, it will cause us to have to be radically countercultural uh, to not only know names, but to give weight and power. And so I, I want to look at this text. We're going to look at really just three occasions of people that Paul, the, the great apostle Paul, um, noticed people. We're going to look at Phoebe, we're going to look at Junia, and we're going to look at this guy, Tertius. And we're going to, we're going to look at them because uh, one of the amazing things about Paul, in every letter he wrote except for one, he introduces himself not with his title. Um, Sometimes people ask pastors, what do you want to be called? And I'm like, well, hey, if Paul and John was good enough for Paul and John, I think Bob will be good enough for me. Um, and, and it's not knocking that I, I think there's great honor in being a pastor, in being your pastor. I cherish that. But Paul saw himself primarily in the church as simply part of the family. That's, that's how he understood. And he introduced himself in every letter except one as a slave of Christ. Uh, in, in the lowest place. And one of the ways that I think you see how attractive Paul was in his humility, I believe Paul is one of the most humble people who ever lived when you look at his bio and what he did. One of the most attractive things about humility is that humility is not so much thinking less of yourself, but it's just thinking of yourself less. And how do you think of yourself less? You fill that preoccupation with self by constantly wanting to bring other people out of the background and, and lift them up <laughs> and, and bring people who are serving in the background out so that what they're doing is seen as equally significant with those who may have a more public role. And we find Paul do this again and again and again. And I said that uh, you ought to get to know the name of your letter carrier. Again, that can, be, that can be a challenge. Maybe you're not home at that time. But the first person that Paul mentions is actually Phoebe, who is practically the letter carrier of the book of Romans. Um, she's many, many other things. But Donald Gray Barnhouse, uh, the preacher at 10th Presbyterian last century, said this. He said, uh, never was there a greater burden carried by such tender hands because as she carried the book of Romans, handwritten by Paul, uh, she sa he said, the theological history of the church through the centuries was in the manuscript entrusted to this woman's hands. The, the, our Reformation heritage was in that hand. The, the, what has resulted in revivals and renewals, where the book of Romans has been preached in history, um, it has resulted in powerful revivals and renewals. Um, just the preface to Luther's commentary on Romans caused John Wesley's heart, he said, was strangely warmed by it. Um, this is explosive material. Um, more powerful than the nuclear code suitcase. And, and who was it entrusted to? It was entrusted to this businesswoman, um, Phoebe. And she is regarded here, Paul says a couple things about her. He says, uh, first of all, that he calls her a prostasis, um, and that means a benefactor. And, and he, he is showing that she was a very successful professional woman. In fact, that probably was why she was traveling, uh, because she was, had business in Rome. Paul was writing this letter from Corinth. And so perhaps she was in that port city, Corinth, and carrying on business 
But he entrusted this woman as a benefactor. And in fact, she had a ministry that she had authority over uh, dispersing funds. And that's why she is called a, a deacon. He says that she is called, and the word is diakonos. Uh, and when Paul uses this word diakonos, he does not mean uh, simply a general servant. But every time Paul uses the word diakonos, every time Paul does, he's referring to either Tychicus, Epaphras, Timothy, uh, or and in all those occasions, it's always translated official deacon. When Paul uses it of Timothy, when Paul uses it of Epaphras or Tychicus, this word is always translated deacon. But when it is attached to Phoebe, do you know what the translators did? They decided not to give it an official status. Huh, I wonder why that is. Why in that list of four, when the three were given that title, it was officially translated as a ministry with authority and special status, but when it was attached to Phoebe, the translators decided not to make it official, but they just made it servant, many of the translations. Do you, do you have a suspicion? Because <laughs> she was a woman. <laughs> and so they hid that kind, of, that, that kind of title that every other place is attached to her. But he says here that she had authority over funds and she was disbursing those funds. She was a a particular kind of steward that was running a ministry uh, that was to be recognized. This this was was her central central row. And, And he tells her, that he says that there to assist her in every way, but he describes her as a sister in Christ. He says she's a servant of Centria. He says you should welcome her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in any way, and she has been a, a helper of many people, including him. But he also calls her our sister. You notice that in the very first phrase. I commend to you our sister Phoebe. This is Paul's favorite metaphor for describing the church, is that we are siblings to each other. I think we can't dwell long enough here um, on the significance of this, because, you know, sibling relationships, though we may have different histories in regard for our siblings, I don't think there has ever been a legal process to divorce a sibling. Now, maybe you have a sibling you've thought that about. But a sibling is your sibling because of your relationship to the parent. And it brings you into one family. And the Bible says that our relationship as siblings has actually been secured by Jesus, who is the only son of God by nature and right. In other words, Jesus has always been the son of God. He's always been God. He's always been declared the son of God. Uh, And he has it by nature and by right. But for the rest of us siblings, we receive it undeservedly by grace. And it's because Jesus is our perfect elder brother. The book of Hebrews says he's not ashamed to call us his siblings because he has, he has that status earned and then he grants it to us. Jesus, he's, the, he's not the older brother like in the prodigal son who stands over with his arms folded when the prodigal comes back having squandered his inheritance. But he's not ashamed of us. He's actually happy to divide his earned and deserved inheritance with the likes of us. And, and I love how, how this puts relationships in such a beautiful context because he, in a sense, exalts Phoebe with her deacon service and, and says, give her, give her the resources she needs. He's basically saying, contribute to her fund because she is completely trustworthy. Then Paul kind of humbles himself and says, she's been a benefactor to me. He puts himself under Phoebe and says, you know, she made a judgment about Paul and said, okay, Paul's worthy of my support. <laughs> How about that judgment? That's to the test of time, right? Amen. And so he says, she's been, you know, over me as, as a benefactor. She's been a servant as the carrier of this letter. But he says, the most important thing about Phoebe is she is my sister. <laughs> she's my sister in Christ. There's, there's no hierarchy here. 
She's, she's both over Paul. She's both serving under Paul. She is, most of all, beside Paul as a treasured relationship. And he says to the whole church at Rome, he says, and she's your sister. <laughs> I love that. I, I, that exaltation of her in that, in that position. <laughs> this is how Jesus styled the church. If you remember when... Uh, Mary came and his brothers, they were afraid he was getting carried away. If you remember that section in Mark 3, and they came to kind of challenge him and, and, and they said, Jesus, you, um, your mother and, and your brothers are coming to see you. And Jesus said to the crowd, and he, it says in Mark chapter 12, he pointed to his disciples as they said, your family is here for you. And he says, no, no, these are my mother and brother and sisters because if you want to be my disciple, a disciple is one who does the will of my father. And in doing that, Jesus was, was showing that his disciples included a whole host of women. I mean, you couldn't point and say, these are my you know, sisters and mothers if there were no women there. And Jesus was showing that there's no hierarchy, but there is family in the church of Christ that we're all on, on this level status because the ground is level around the cross of Christ and around Jesus, again, the only one who deserves to be called a son of God, bringing us the undeserving when we deserve the opposite, when we should have been cast out, bringing us into that center place. And Jesus says, and again, we have to believe this about ourselves to believe it about others, but he says, this is the most significant thing. She is our Sister, She is a deacon. She's a successful businesswoman. She runs a ministry. She is doing incognito, undercover work. Who, the Romans would never have thought that a woman was entrusted with the most, arguably the most important letter in all of history that's ever been written to smuggle that to this church so that it could be digested and then sent out to all the churches, even to us. And you know, we wouldn't have known anything about this woman <laughs> if it weren't for Paul giving us this record. So that's, that's the first one is Phoebe. I'm gonna draw your attention. The next one uh, is found in verse seven, especially. There's so many here. There's um, so many titles given. There's 24 individuals. There's twice as many men as women, but somebody noted that the women get more than twice the space as the men. And I think Paul is intentionally lifting up what was not true in his day, culturally, women in the Roman Empire were not even regarded as full people. Uh, just There was a great population of debt slaves in Rome. They were not regarded as full people. Women were not regarded as having all the rights of people. Uh, they could not protect themselves and their property alone. They could not do business transactions. Paul's bringing them out into the light. Uh, and the next one I draw, want to draw your attention to is Junius. Uh, this is, again, a name that we uh, would not know, and she is uh, here. It's pretty clear she's married to Andronicus. And so, so, again, Andronicus and Junia are people Paul knew who had moved to Rome, and he's sending this letter, and he says, I want you to greet these two that are precious to me. And here's what he says about them. He says, first of all, they're my fellow Jews. Um, they were Jewish believers. And this was very important for Paul to have uh, Jewish uh, endorsements of his ministry to the Gentiles, saying, hey, when Paul is offering Jesus the Messiah to the whole world, he's on sound ground here. So they were fellow Jews, but they were also those that were in prison with Paul. They suffered for their faith. Uh, historians tell us the name Andronicus is a name often given to freed Slaves, uh, And Junia is a name likely taken up from that category. So they were Jews. They weren't Roman citizens. They had a low um, earthly status and they were in prison, which means they probably were extremely mistreated in prison, even tortured with Paul. And so we see that they, they suffered for their faith. They were Jews who embraced Jesus as their Messiah and they suffered for their faith. But what may rock our worlds is the next phrase that Paul says is he says they are outstanding among the apostles. And so this statement that these are two apostles, it doesn't mean that they were of the 12 who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Christ, but it means that they had a particular pioneering and trailblazing ministry. 
They were champions, trailblazers, and pioneers. That's what uh, the word apostle means. And the apostles were not just the 12, but there are others called apostles. Did you know that Barnabas is called apostle? This is apostle with maybe, we would say, a small a. They weren't the original 12, but they were doing the same work of the 12, taking the gospel into new boundary lines of work. So Barnabas is called an apostle. Silas and Timothy are called apostles in 1 Thessalonians 2. Apollos is called an apostle. Epaphroditus is called an apostle. And Andronicus and Junia are called apostles. And what it means is they had significant ministry. That may be why they landed in prison. They didn't waste time with people who weren't, you know, maybe their ministry was causing such transformation and uproar that they got the notice of the authorities. But it's really interesting that in some of the translations, just like Phoebe, uh, this was suppressed. And, and so instead of saying uh, that they are outstanding among the apostles, it simply says something else, which by the way, I would take this if I were them. Uh, this would be a, a high compliment. It says that the apostles regard them as outstanding or they are regarded as outstanding by the apostles. But it's very interesting that that, that phrase in preposition in the original um, among is, all, is always translated among or in the presence among the company of the apostles in virtually every other situation. So again, her ministry is is suppressed by some translations, but the King James gets it right. <laughs> the Revised Standard gets it right. Um, uh, the Dewey Rames Bible gets it right and says, this woman was an apostle. And in fact, what we know is the Eastern Orthodox Church has um, honored her always as one of the major leaders of apostolic ministry. Um, that she is to be regarded uh, again, as a effective trailblazer proven by persecution minister. And Paul, um, he lifts her up as one who, uh, yes, he says, she was in Christ before I was, but she was regarded, not just regarded as outstanding by the apostles, which by the way, if the apostle Paul said that I was doing an outstanding job, I would take that. <laughs> that would be high compliment, high praise. But here he, he lifts this woman who's unknown out of the background and he wants the whole church to know and to celebrate her name. And I think those, those first two at least correct an error in culture that at least in many of the churches that um, I knew of and then in churches I was part of bought into, into a, a system that I believe was wrongly imposed upon the Bible called complementarianism. I don't know whether you've heard of that, uh, but it really emphasizes that uh, and the first part, and I agree with this, that men and women bring uniquely different things to the table of ministry. I think that that is true and can be celebrated. But where it goes awry is, it's, uh, is it limits and puts a lid on the place of women so that women are not able to bring words of instruction or lead even in prayer, or that they are, they are not allowed to do the things that we see them doing in the New Testament and particularly in Romans 16. And I believe these, this chapter where Paul is amplifying what these women are doing is kind of his statement that he is continuing to do what Jesus did. He is enrolling women as equal status disciples, equally gifted, equally marked by the Spirit, and equal to be uh, released into service. And I hope we not only have that in our statement on paper, but I hope that that is the way that we function as a body. I'm a, I believe that this is so critical that we don't disemploy um, half of the members of the church from using their gifts to the absolute hilt, from leading, teaching, um, initiating, taking responsibility in the church. And this text alone, although there are many others, I think would encourage us on that path. And Paul bringing these people out of the shadows. Again, if there's a young woman here, I, you, we, we may need to apologize that we haven't championed the ministries of Phoebe and Junie enough so that there would be no young woman here growing up to say that there is somehow a lid or a lack of a model of being a true Christian leader in the context of the church. But I finally want to draw you to the last person who I think illustrates this principle, and that um, Andy Crouch, 
who provided a lot of insight and background in this message, he calls Romans 16, verse 22, the most amazing verse in the book of Romans. I don't know whether I agree with him, uh, but it's close. And then he calls Romans 16, 22, the most amazing verse in the Bible. Mm, I don't know. But let me show you why it's amazing. Because in verse 22, up till now, up to Romans 16, 21, Paul has been responsible for every single thing that was inspired, God breathed, and written down in this letter for the Romans. So I want you to imagine Paul, I don't know what it would be like to be a vehicle of divine revelation. Can you imagine? Like your heart must be so fired up. You must be so centered. Like there's no room for distractions, right? And you're writing these incredible uh, words. In this situation though, Paul was dictating it. Maybe he was dictating it because of some thought Paul had uh, some kind of problem with his vision, with his eyes. Um, maybe it was simply custom. But there was this young man, Tertius, and Tertius's job was to dictate, by, by dictation, write down the book of Romans. So this is a great parlor game question. When you are doing Bible trivia, you can say, who wrote the book of Romans? And when they say Paul, you can say, no, Tertius. Because it actually is Tertius. And what we know is that that role of writing down words was not done by people of high standing. This was done by, by someone of lower social standing. They had to be educated enough to write it down well, but, but it was someone who was doing dictation. And we know a little something else about this young person, this young man, it's in the masculine, is that his name Tertius means third, which kind of means like the people who make our sandwiches at Wawa or at the cashiers that we no longer use. He didn't actually get a name. Uh, in the Roman Empire, it was infant mortality was so high that parents often, instead of giving their children a name, they just gave them a number. And his name means third. Uh, one reason we, and, and, and so here's what happens. This, this guy named Third, who didn't even really get a full name, and he, you know, he's sent, hired to write down the words of this guy named Paul. All of a sudden, Paul stops, and you can imagine what a job this, this young person had, and he says, hey, Tertius, I've greeted everybody. Uh, do you want to say hey to everybody? And so Paul, this vehicle divine revelation, he hands the microphone to this young kid and he says, now you, you take a go at it. Isn't that remarkable? <laughs> I mean, doesn't this make you want to love Paul? Because <laughs> he takes this kid and, and he's so free with the significance of each human being and he says, you address the church at Rome. <laughs> and you know what this kid does? He does it. And the first thing he does, this kid, he says, I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Hey, he reveals, he's a believer. Maybe he spent a long time with Paul to write down this big letter. And Paul led him to the faith, or maybe he already was, and he volunteered. But you know what he does next? He writes a little about himself. Verse 23 says, Gaius, whose hospitality I enjoy. He says, so Tertius is taking a, play from Paul and he's saying oh you deflected the attention from yourself dictating this letter to me now I'm going to deflect attention from me to the people who give me hospitality their name is Gaius Gaius is giving me hospitality and the whole church here at Corinth um, that the, I enjoy we send you, send you his greetings Erastus who's the city director of public works see he's getting out of hand Tertius is passing the mic to other people. So Erastus gets in on it, and Erastus uh, is given to greeters, and then he says, and our brother Quartus. What is Quartus? Fourth. He's saying, I got a little brother, and uh, I'm gonna pass the mic to him. I, I wonder if Paul had to say, okay, Tertius, that's enough. This letter's getting long enough. But do you see what this is doing? This is an, an example in the midst of the solemnity of Holy Scripture being written that every single one of us matters. Amen. That every single role matters. 
that being part of the church is yielding ourselves with whatever ability we have to do and doing it, but the church is not just our doing, the church is a family of relationships. You can't divorce your siblings. And, and yet siblings, when they're as a family, they act as a family and they're working together. And I wanna say, I think one of the most countercultural things we can do as a church, counter to culture and counter to church is corporate. Oh, we need to scrub all sense of corporate out of our church, I think. Not that corporate is bad. The corporate does a good thing in the corporate world. But it's not the design of God. I don't, I don't need more corporate in my life. I don't know about you. But I do need more friends and family in my life. I need to be part of that kind of movement. I want to say what the psychiatrist Kurt Thompson said. It's okay that I'm losing my voice because I am really moved by this. Amen. He says this. He says, every one of us comes into the world looking for one thing. The moment we were born, we were looking for one thing. We were looking for a face. We were born, and in the shock and surprise of birth, we look for a face because until we see a face, until another sees us, we do not know who we are, and we look for someone who will look at us. And every human being in their deepest drama is looking for someone who is looking for us. And we are in this room because someone, some face, found our face and locked eyes with us and we were given a name. But at some point in every human life, the gaze shifts, the face disappears and no one is looking at us and that's called loneliness. And in some lives that happens very early, even in the moments right after birth, a glance is given and then someone says, this is the number, number three, number four, baby no name. And I imagine what it was like for Tertius to realize that Paul was looking at him. That Paul was seeing that Tertius was his brother. And this is the revolutionary act of us as a church CLC. That in an impersonal world that fails to recognize persons of every possible status, to see them all and know them all and call them as names, as brothers and sisters, is it any wonder that in the first century, a church that actually lived that out grew? They did it. And all of that, doing and living that way, is an outgrowth of the fact that when Jesus died, he died for you personally. He interceded for you. It says he interceded for the transgressors that we might come to him. He called your name and he brought you into a community, the church, his church, his ecclesia, where everyone has a name and a calling and everyone is regarded as on equal level ground, a family of siblings, all because we're related to Jesus as our older brother. And the place we best recognize that is when we sit around a table. And so I, I wanna transition from this into our time around the Lord's Supper, but I wanna give you a moment to pray silently about two things. First of all, have you received your place in Jesus' church? Not just CLC, but in Jesus' church with Jesus as your elder brother who welcomes you, who has earned your way in and provided the way into the Father's house. Is that clear and certain for you? That's, that's the grounding that we take the Lord's Supper on. We don't take the Lord's Supper to get virtue into our life, though it gives us strength, or to get status. We take the Lord's Supper because God has said, you already belong around my table. Not a one of us is worthy, but every one of us is invited. Not a one of us is worthy, but every one of us is provided for through the blood of Christ. I want you to re reflect on that and be moved. And then for a point of confession and prayer, I want to ask you this question that you ask the Lord. Say, God, is there anything you want to say to me about my relationship with my siblings? You know what breaks a parent's heart more than anything? I'm so glad I, I have not experienced this. It would be the worst thing that could come into our family. It would be if any combination of our five children 
we're no longer on loving terms with each other. Can you imagine what that would do? Some of you may be living in that pain in your biological family, and you know that parent hurt. You've, you, there, there are families where the kids say, you have to have separate Christmas dinners because they will not come together. That is the absolute worst. And let's call it for what it is. It, it is a sin against the status and the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's why he says that if you're, if you're offering your gift at the altar, he, he says, first go and be reconciled. We will only have the kind of sibling relationships with each other when they grow out of a, a humbling astonishment that God would welcome the likes of me around this table. And when I come to that place, it fills me with a joyful humility. Humility is so joyful. Humility is on display here in this passage, bringing everybody out. And so let's use this time to pray on those things. We'll pray silently, and then I'll lead us in the words of institution, the Lord's Supper. Oh, Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus to provide for this celebration, to be around this table. Lord, we pray that each one of us, as we participate, would be bowled over with astonishing gratitude for what you have, the price you've paid to welcome us here. And secondly, Father, we pray that you would convict us, that you would speak to us about any sibling relationship, because that is what we are, that needs to have your adjustment. Wherever there is any need of repentance, wherever there is any need of the offering of a new chance, where there is any allowance of a cloud to pass over these sibling relationships, would you direct us, convict us, cleanse us of that sin and empower us to go live it out in the right direction as siblings in Christ. And so now we pray, Lord, that you would come and visit us as we partake of the cost of our salvation in Jesus' name. Amen. It's such a privilege to welcome you to the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have um, gluten-free offerings over here, and intinction will be offered here for you to come forward. But I want to pronounce to you the words of institution, that our Lord Jesus took the bread, and after giving thanks for it, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. And in the same way, our Lord Jesus took the cup, and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of the sins of many. For all who have received Christ as their savior, forgiving them of sins through his sacrifice and are willing to walk with him as their Lord, as the authority of their life, this table is a table of grace to all of you. And so I invite you now to come forward and to partake of the table of Jesus Christ. Our service would come forward. Yes, all of you 
to our reception, um, let's lift up our hearts to our God. We are one family, brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, now may the grace 
of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship and communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. If no you means less be